Tonight's chapters, chapters 7 through 9, have as their backdrop the most underrated story in all of the Old Testament. Oh, Christians know the stories of David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale, Daniel in the lion's den, Moses at the burning bush. But few have heard of Isaiah and the angel. Yet here's a story so important to God's interest that he chooses to record it three times in Scripture. 2 Kings chapter 19, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and Isaiah chapter 37. The event is also referred to in other prophets and in the Psalms. Here's the story. After successful sieges against the Syrian capital of Damascus and the Israeli capital of Samaria, in 701 B.C., the Assyrian army set its sights on the Judean capital of Jerusalem, and they laid siege. At least 185,000 troops camped outside Jerusalem's walls, poised to strike. For comparison, a 200,000 troop army is about the population of Forsyth County, Georgia. A vast number of people rallied against God's holy city. The Assyrian king hoped that the mere threat of such a vast army would intimidate the Jews into surrender. His hope was to conquer Jerusalem without firing a shot. But that's not what happened. Isaiah the prophet and Hezekiah the king, they dropped to their knees. They prayed to God for a miracle. The people of Jerusalem went to bed thinking they were on the brink of annihilation. But the next morning, they awoke to a pleasant surprise. For during the night, the angel of the Lord had fought for Judah. A single battle-hardened angel, a one angel wrecking crew, slaughtered the 185,000 seasoned soldiers of the Assyrians. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, provides us the play-by-play. On a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home. He tucked tail in retreat, and he remained at Nineveh. It was a devastating defeat. George Byron immortalized the angel's victory in a poem. I'll read it to you. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold. And his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears were like stars on the sea when the blue waves rolled nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn is blown, that host on tomorrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill. And their hearts once heaved forever grew still. And there lay the soldiers distorted and pale with the dew on their brow and the rust on their mail. And their tents were all silent, their banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the Assyrian widows are loud in their wail. And the idols are broken in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile unsmoked by the sword, has melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. It was a mighty triumph for the one true God. But that's just the beginning of the story. 
Isaiah chapters 7 through 10 fills us in on some details and provides us some background. It sets the stage. Verse 1. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail. Now Isaiah takes us back in time, 30 years prior to this invasion that I've mentioned. Verse 1 recalls a couple of earlier bullies. Hezekiah's granddad, Ahaz, was frightened when the king of Syria and the king of Israel came against him. Understand, Syria and Assyria were two different people groups. Assyria lived on the Euphrates River in the heart of Mesopotamia. Nineveh was its capital. Syria lived just north of Israel with its capital in Damascus. At the time, Ahaz was afraid of his nearer neighbors, Israel and Syria. In fact, he was actually courting the more distant Assyria, hoping to secure her protection. It says, And it was told to the house of David, or to the kings of Judah, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Ever heard the expression, shaking like a leaf? Well, here is where it originates. It described Ahaz. Ephraim was the tribe just north of Jerusalem. And this meant that the invading army was camped in Jerusalem's northern suburbs, and it scared King Ahaz to death. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jezub, your son. Now Isaiah had two sons, and there is a price to be paid if you are the son of a prophet. You might just get a weird name. Isaiah named both of his sons prophetically. This phrase, Shear, Shear Jeshub, means a remnant shall return. This promise of a Jewish remnant was God's assurance that Judah would never be utterly destroyed, that there would always be a remnant. And God calls this father-son prophetic team and tells them where to meet King Ahaz. He says, at the end of the aqueduct, from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem with us, the upper pool was probably the pools of Bethesda, that area just north of the Temple Mount. The location of the fuller's field is uncertain, so we're not really sure how the highway ran. FYI, a fuller was a professional launderer. He cleansed and he thickened the cloth in essence, he made it fuller. He took soap and elbow grease and he pounded out the stains. It reconditioned the fibers. It made the fibers fuller. The laundry process necessitated running water and so the fuller's field was always located near a stream or a spring. King Ahaz is expecting a prolonged siege of the city. And so he goes out to inspect the aqueduct, the city's water supply. Evidently, it was either north or east of the city. And Isaiah intercepts him on his way. In verse 4, God tells Isaiah what to say to the king. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Remaliah. 
The Syrian king was reason. King of Israel was the son of Remaliah, a man named Pekah. And God calls them both two stubs of smoking firebrands, or literally a couple of cigarette butts. Here's his point. These kings and their armies will blow a lot of smoke, but they won't flame up. And he's telling King Ahaz, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated by these two kings. Now remember, at the time, Ahaz is seeking the protection of this faraway army of Assyrians. Fear is forcing him into an ungodly alliance with the Assyrians. He doesn't trust God. That's his problem. In fact, he will go as far as to buy the security of the Assyrians with gold from the temple. Ahaz is even going to bow down to the idols of Assyria. And this is grieving to God. Ahaz's compromise is unnecessary. God has promised to deliver his people. And yet Ahaz has succumbed to fear. And it's caused him to create ungodly alliances. And my question to us tonight, has our fears forced us into creating ungodly alliances? Are we trusting in people other than God, people who can't help us? Are we failing to trust in God's promises to deliver us? He goes on, Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Tabel was a code name for Remaliah. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. These Syrians are plotting an attack against Jerusalem to put a hole in its wall. But God promises to thwart the Syrians. He says, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. In other words, Ahaz shouldn't be worried about Syria and Damascus. He shouldn't be worried about Ephraim, which was a nickname for Israel. For in 65 years, Syria and Israel will be no more. At the time, it was 733 B.C. Just 11 years later, 722 B.C., Israel's capital fell to Assyria. In the years following the Assyrians, they resettled Ephraim with foreigners from other conquered lands. And by 668 B.C., 65 years later, the northern kingdom of Israel had actually lost its Hebrew identity. You see, one truth you learn by studying the Bible is that nothing God does is random. Here the location of Isaiah's prophecy was no accident. Where he intercepts Ahaz was planned by God there on the highway by the fuller's field. Remember, Ahaz had invited the Assyrians to protect him against Syria. And yet in the years to come, Assyria would pose a greater threat than either Syria or Israel. In just three decades, in the reign of Ahaz's son Hezekiah, those 185,000 Assyrian troops will surround Jerusalem. And their king, a man named Sennacherib, will send out an ambassador to rail insults and threats and pose terms of surrender to the city of Jerusalem. And guess where he speaks to the Jews? 2 Kings 18 verse 17 tells us, on the highway to the fuller's field. 
Isn't that interesting? Sennacherib's envoy will do his trash talking at the exact spot that Isaiah had promised God's deliverance. And it was a double reminder. For if King Ahaz had trusted God instead of pursuing the Assyrians, his son Hezekiah might not have faced their murderous army outside the walls of Jerusalem. And yet now that it's occurred, God's promises still stand. And in the exact spot where the enemy will hurl his threats, God has already promised deliverance for his people. And thus, verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, trying to stir up his faith, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Here's an incredible command. He says, Ask for a sign. God is going to assure Ahaz of his deliverance with a sign of the king's own choosing. He can ask for the most outlandish sign imaginable and God will do it. If it were you, what would you ask for? But Ahaz said in his false humility, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. We'll learn from Ahaz's future actions that it was a false humility that he didn't really want to trust the Lord. Ahaz had already made up his mind. He had more confidence in his political maneuvers than in God. He was planning to strike this alliance with the Assyrians. And so since Ahaz refuses to name a sign, God does it for him. Then he, or Isaiah, said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And notice Isaiah takes this matter of a sign beyond the current local situation. You see, the immediate politics provoked the prophecy, but it's as if God knew it would be wasted on Ahaz. And so he broadens this sign and its implications to the whole house of David. The sign Isaiah reveals will speak not only to King Ahaz, but it will be a sign to all the kings of the Davidic dynasty, to all the generations of the tribes of Judah. And what God chooses as a sign is more bizarre than anything Ahaz could have dreamed up on his own. For Isaiah says in verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or literally, God with us. What a sign indeed. Now if you've studied the New Testament, you'll recall that after the angel appears to Joseph, a carpenter from Nazareth, to tell him that his betrothed wife Mary has conceived a son through the Holy Spirit, Matthew says that this all occurred to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Jesus was born of a virgin, just as Isaiah predicted. Two other Old Testament prophecies foretell the virgin birth. Genesis 3, verse 15. Jeremiah 31, verse 22. But none of them do it as clearly and as forcefully as this sign given to Ahaz. Be aware that in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Hebrew word translated virgin, virgin is the word alma. And there are skeptics who will say Alma doesn't necessarily mean virgin. 
It can mean just a young girl of marriageable age. And this is true. But it often will mean virgin, one who has never had relations with a man. In fact, Alma appears seven times in the Old Testament. And each time, the context of the passage refers to a girl who has never had sexual relations. All doubt about the meaning of this word was removed in 270 B.C. when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, a translation known as the Septuagint. That translation renders the word Alma as the Greek word Parthenos, which is an unequivocal reference to a virgin. And this is the word that Matthew uses when he quotes this passage from Isaiah, Parthenos. There is no doubt that Matthew considered Mary to be a real virgin. And this is so important. For the virgin birth of Jesus is not a peripheral issue. It is crucial, a crucial doctrine to Christianity. You see, the genetics of salvation require a virgin birth. Sin was passed down from Adam through the father's bloodline. Thus, if a human father had sired Jesus, he would have been born in sin. And his death could have never been substitutionary. For Jesus to die for you and me, it was necessary for him to be born sinless. Thus the virgin birth enabled Jesus to be as human as his mother Mary and yet as sinless and divine as God his Father in heaven. Here's the point of Isaiah's prophecy. He introduces to us Emmanuel. The sign to Ahaz was Emmanuel. He'll be born of a virgin, but that'll be 700 years in the future. Isaiah 7 verse 14 lists a detail that identifies his birth. But Jesus was preexistent. He was alive in Isaiah's day. In fact, more relevant to King Ahaz than his virgin birth was his presence and his mission on earth, even at that time. You see, Jesus didn't commence being Emmanuel when he was born of a virgin. He was Emmanuel from the beginning. And here Isaiah introduces Emmanuel, the preexistent Christ, to the nation Judah. He'll be born of a virgin 700 years in the future, but he's about to play a huge role in Judah's current crisis. Isaiah talks about Emmanuel in verse 15. Curds and honey he shall eat. Literally, baby food he shall eat. That he may know to refuse evil and choose good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Curds and honey were baby food. Thus Isaiah is saying that before this miraculous virgin-born child reaches adulthood, Syria and Israel will no longer be serious threats. It was 730 years before the child of the prophecy was even born. Yet if Jesus had been born that very day, the time frame would have still been valid. A Jewish boy celebrates his bar mitzvah or his coming of age, his passage from childhood to adulthood at age 12. And in a little less than a dozen years, the Assyrians had both wiped out Israel and Syria. Both enemies were to be toppled. Assyria will conquer Syria and Israel, but they'll keep coming south. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. 
Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Here he references the civil war that split the nation after King Solomon. Times will be worse than they've been in two centuries. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and on all thorns and in all pastures. The enemy armies will swarm into the land like a swarm of flies or a swarm of bees. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. God's people will be dishonored. Their hair will be shaved. They'll be scalped. The Assyrians often scalp their conquered foes. The Assyrians will serve as God's hired razor. Verse 21. And it shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. And for curds and honey, everyone will eat who is left in the land. There will be no stake in Judah. The people will be forced to survive. So they'll keep a few head of cattle alive as an ongoing source of milk and cheese. This is all will happen when the Assyrians invade the land. And it shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth of a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. People will be unable to cultivate the land. With arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. Once populated areas will become a wilderness. Animals will graze where people lived. Here are the conditions prompted by the invasion. Chapter 8 begins. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. I told you being the son of a prophet had its problems. One of them was getting weird names. And here is the name of Isaiah's second son, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. I think I'd rather be the boy named Sue. Or the boy named Sandy even. Imagine the first day of school with the name Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Can't even write it on a name tag. But this too was prophetic, for it meant speed to the plunder, swift to the spoils. Speed to the plunder, swift to the spoils. This was what was going to happen. This was the Syrians, how they were going to invade the land and become a threat to Judah. The name of Isaiah's first son spoke of God's deliverance, his second son's name spoke of God's destruction. Jerusalem's enemies will come against them. And then verse 2. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Well, the whole family was prophets. Wife is a prophetess. His two sons were named after prophecies. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. 
For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. God will judge Judah's enemies by the hand of the Assyrians before Isaiah's son can say, Dad or Mom. The Lord also spoke to me saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shaloah that flow softly and rejoice in reason and in Remaliah's son. You see, God was upset with the northern ten tribes of Israel for turning their back on Jerusalem. The waters of Shaloah. This was the pool of Siloam. This factors into Jesus' life. This is where some miracles occurred. Where the man with the mud in his eyes was told to go and to wash the mud off. The pool of Siloam was Jerusalem's water supply. And yet Israel had turned their backs on the waters of God, the city of Jerusalem. Instead, they'd set up this rival kingdom in Samaria. And we're told, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria in all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. In other words, the waters of Jerusalem would have been gentle. They would have flowed softly, whereas the armies of Assyria will overwhelm these northern tribes. The, the nation of Israel, they will overwhelm them like a flood. And notice verse 8. He, meaning the king of Assyria, will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. This flood of Assyrians will sweep across the fertile crescent, will come down from the north, will overwhelm the northern kingdom of Israel, and they will wind up right on Jerusalem's doorstep. They'll stretch out their wings and they'll fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And here is where the plot thickens. For remember Isaiah 7 verse 14, who is Emmanuel? Oh, he won't be born for 700 years. But Jesus, the Son of God, exists from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus is this Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the land of Israel belongs to Him. It's His land. It's Emmanuel's land. And of course, this is the truth that will one day dawn on both Jews and Arabs. On, Is on Israelis and Hamas. Today, the fighting ensues over possession of the land of Israel. But when Emmanuel returns, he'll take what belongs to him. And in the end, everyone will, will agree that it's your land, O Emmanuel. And this was why the foreign invaders of Isaiah's day should beware. Assyrian troops had poured into Judah like a flood, but their army was about to meet its match. He says, be shattered, O you peoples. And be broken in pieces. Give ear all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. Why? Why? For God is with us. Emmanuel will come to our defense. Who would stop this invasion? Who would break the invaders? God is with us. Emmanuel will. 
What was the sign that God gave to Ahaz? The guarantee of deliverance. It was God with us. It was Emmanuel. Here's why Isaiah and the angel is one of the most provocative stories in all of the Bible. Jesus was the angel who killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. It was Emmanuel on the warpath who delivered Jerusalem. Hey, the first blood Jesus spilt was not his own. The Hebrew term angel, it simply means messenger, whether human or angelic. There are other Old Testament examples of the angel of the Lord being a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I believe that's what happens here. And here is the part of the Christmas story that seldom, if ever, gets told. Mary's baby was not a newcomer. Mary's baby had been here before. The babe had been to battle. The Christmas child, Emmanuel, was the warrior of Isaiah's day that proved the Hebrew God true and who dispensed with the evil Assyrians. The babe that Mary laid in the manger, hey, oh, had already made hay in battle in the days of Isaiah. Seven centuries earlier, the babe of Bethlehem had come brandishing a sword with fire in his eyes, with justice in his heart. Jesus had flashed his steel, and by the time he returned it to its scabbard, it was dripping with rebel blood. Before Mary's baby cried, he had yelled a battle cry. Imagine Joseph when he heard the angels say, Emmanuel. Joseph knew Isaiah. He knew the Old Testament. What did he think when he learned that Mary's baby would be the ancient warrior. Oh, it made the humility of God. The fact that God was willing to become a man, a baby in fact, all the more amazing. Notice verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people Call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. At the time, Ahaz was afraid of the two nations conspiring against him, Israel and Syria. God says, don't be afraid of a conspiracy. Who can conspire against God? One plus God still equals a majority. Oliver Cromwell was a courageous man. One day he was asked how he could be so brave. He responded, I have learned that when you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. God will be Jerusalem's defense. And if you trust Him, He'll be your defense as well. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. And 1 Peter chapter 2 takes this verse and applies it to Emmanuel. Embrace Jesus as your cornerstone and He'll make you a temple of praise. Reject Him and you'll stumble. You'll stumble over Him and be broken by Him. And this is what happened to the Jews. Both houses of the Jews, both Israel and Judah, they stumbled over Jesus. He didn't meet up to their expectations. They wanted Him to be a political ruler. Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom. 
They were offended by his claims and his intentions. Better to embrace Jesus as your Lord than to stumble over him because of your prejudice. Jesus became as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Matthew 21, verse 44, Jesus referred to himself as a stone. He said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Oh, it's wonderful to come broken and humble before the Lord Jesus. But the haughty and the self-reliant will be crushed. And then verse 16 says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah here states his faith. He'll wait on the Lord. He'll trust in the Lord. He and his children whom the Lord has given him will trust in the Lord, and there'll be signs and wonders in Israel. Isaiah was a righteous man in a sea of idolaters. His life and his sons were a sign against their faithlessness. In contrast, Ahaz had sold his soul to Assyria. He had bowed to her idols. That's why we're told, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Living? Imagine in Jerusalem's darkest hour, some of her brightest minds turned to the occult rather than to God. And it grieved Isaiah. Why would you trust a wizard? Why would you try to speak to the dead when you can go to a living God? The only reason is if you didn't want to hear what he had to say. Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You see, this was Isaiah's strategy when he faced tough times and impossible circumstances. He turned to the law, to the testimony, to the word of God. And if a counselor steers you in any other direction than God's word, understand, there is no light in them. They're not speaking for God unless they direct you to his word. We're told they will pass through it hard pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Those who refuse to trust in God, they turn on everyone else. They curse their king. It's easier to blame others than it is to rely on God. Chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali were always two of the lesser tribes, especially in the days of Isaiah. These were the tribes that felt the gloom from chapter 8. In other words, the full brunt of the Assyrian flood, the Assyrian invasion coming down from the north. To get to Jerusalem, they had to pass through Zebulun and Naphtali and wreak their havoc and their rage upon these tribes. We're told, and afterward, more heavily oppressed her, 
by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Notice here Isaiah speaks of the way of the sea. If you've been with us to Israel, you know about the Via Maris. It was a trade route that ran along the Mediterranean, up the coast, through the cross, cross from the sea, up toward Damascus, through the Galilee. This was the path marched by the Assyrian army. It came right down into Naphtali and Zebulun. And these two tribes caught the full brunt of the gloom or this invasion. Notice too, Isaiah calls these northern tribes the Galilee of the Gentiles. After the Syrian invasion, a larger Gentile population settled by the Sea of Galilee. And by the first century, Galilee was the home of Greek culture in the land of Israel. The phrase beyond the Jordan or east of the Jordan was also an area heavily populated with Gentiles. It too was a northern area east of the Jordan River. Ten Roman cities dotted that area. They were called the Decapolis. They too were purveyors of Greek culture. And all this explains Nathaniel's reaction to Philip when he was invited to come and to meet Jesus of Nazareth. You remember how Nathaniel scoffed? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why? Because Nazareth was at the heart of the Galilee. And it was now the home of Gentile culture. The point being is that Zebulun and Naphtali uh, became uh, Gentile, the Gentile of the Galilees because they were in the line of this invasion from the north. And when the Syrians repopulated the area, they did so with Gentile peoples from other lands. All of this meant that the area of Naphtali and Zebulun had, had been harshly treated. They had received a great burden. The gloom had come upon them. And, and in order to recompense them for their trial and for their difficulty, God has a special blessing for them. Zebulun and Naphtali were the first tribes that the Assyrian feet trampled. And that is why Isaiah says that these two tribes will be compensated for their trouble. Notice verse 2. For the people who walked in darkness, that's these Galileans have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And it's interesting, Galilee, which was Jerusalem's doormat, will emerge from the gloom and they'll be given a special blessing. They'll be privileged to see a great light. And what was the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise? Jesus made Galilee the home base of his ministry. It's interesting, Jesus did most of his miracles, not in Jerusalem, but on the sea, along the shore, in the Galilean villages of Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. What we call the Gospel Triangle saw more miracles per square mile than any other place on earth. These cities were all part of the tribe of Naphtali. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise. He was the recompense to these two tribes who had received the brunt of the judgment. Jesus was the great light that later shined in Galilee. Notice verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest 
as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And again, the you here is Emmanuel. Jesus has replaced the gloom of Israel's invaders with an increased joy. He says, For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Emmanuel had broke the Assyrian chokehold on the city of Jerusalem and had brought a harvest of joy. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And thus the spoils of Emmanuel's victory. And again, we find Emmanuel here in Isaiah, the virgin-born babe in chapter 7, the conqueror of chapter 8. Now in chapter 9, we have the fullest description yet of Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus was fully human, a newborn child, but he was also fully divine. God's only Son, a gift to us. Imagine Almighty God laying aside His power and coming to earth, a frail, helpless child, making Himself vulnerable to the care of a teenage mother. Can you imagine? It's been said, the incarnation adds courage to the virtue of the Creator. Indeed it does. When the Holy God joined the ranks of humanity, He entered through the lowest door. He came to understand our predicament. He came to disarm us with His compassion. And notice what's said about Him. And the government will be upon His shoulder. Before Jesus slept in an earthly manger, He sat on a heavenly throne. You see, this Lord Jesus, this Emmanuel, is used to being in charge. Jesus is King of heaven. Thus governing earth is not too much for Him to shoulder. He's not afraid of hard and stressful choices. He's qualified for the job. You see, there are those today who teach that the church will usher in God's kingdom. They envision the church as a body with political muscle. That the goal of the church is to take over society and the governments that oversee them. But this is not what Isaiah tells us. The government will rest on Jesus' shoulders, not ours. Our job is to prepare the way for Christ's return by our faithfulness. And then verse 6 continues, and his name will be called Wonderful. Need a little spice in your life? Why don't you try Wonderful? Jesus is the spice of life, and he's counselor. Got a problem? You need some wisdom? Why don't you go to Jesus tonight? And he's mighty God. Miracles are his forte. Everlasting Father. He and the Father are one. Prince of Peace. He, he will one day bring peace to this world, but today He brings peace to our hearts. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Jesus will sit on the throne of David. That means He'll sit on a Jewish throne. And he'll bring peace and justice to the whole earth. And as the eternal king, he will establish an eternal kingdom. There are those who claim that God is through with Israel. That the promises God made to the Jews have been inherited by the church. But not so. Jesus is a Jewish king. And his throne will be a Jewish throne. 
as hard as certain Gentiles might fight against such a notion, Isaiah closes verse 7 with a note of triumph. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You can take it to the bank. God will see to it that it's fulfilled. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria will say in pride and arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. When Assyria first attacked the northern kingdom, they replaced the Hebrew king Pekah with a puppet king, a man named Hoshea. But Israel was too stubborn to admit defeat. They tried to rebuild and refortify their city. They even solicited the help of the Egyptians. We're told, therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. God will raise up the Assyrians. They'll conquer the northern tribes. The Assyrians first conquered Syria before they laid siege to Israel and Samaria. Afterwards, they turned west along the coast and conquered the Philistines. Then they ended up on Hezekiah's doorstep. And they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. All that God brought upon his people Israel was an attempt to get their attention, to motivate them to repent. Their only option was to repent, and yet they resisted. Once there was an airplane pilot, he radioed the tower. Pilot to tower. I'm 300 miles from land, 600 feet high, and running out of fuel. Please instruct. Over. The tower radioed back. Tower to pilot. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When you're running out of options, you need to run to God. Therefore the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. Both the honorable and the heretic will die at the hands of these invading Assyrians. As a side note, realize that God considers the false prophet, a teacher of lies, the worst of the very worst. The tail, not the head. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. The leaders were their problem. It's been said, never follow a, lead, follow a leader until you know where the lead, who the leader is following. In Israel, it was the blind leading the blind. And therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. If they won't repent, there's more judgment to come. And it continues. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up. And the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. 
every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Oh my. Now here Isaiah is describing the effects of siege warfare. Rather than risk the lives of their soldiers, often an invading army would simply lay siege to the city, camp around the city, cut off its supply lines, and literally starve out their opponent. And this is what Assyria did to Samaria. They laid siege for three long years. I mean, nobody in, nobody out. They stopped all the delivery trucks. They waited on the city and its citizens to starve. And inside the city walls of a besieged city, people get desperate. I mean, folks get hungry. They get so hungry, they attempt to eat their own flesh. In Samaria, they resorted to cannibalism. Imagine being so hungry that you gnaw on your own limbs to bite off a finger. Gives new definition to the term finger food. Which reminds me of a few cannibal jokes. I got a few cannibal jokes for you tonight. As a matter of fact, I got four cannibal jokes. First, did you hear about the cannibal who ate something that disagreed with him? His mother-in-law. Second, what did the cannibal get when he was late for dinner one night? A cold shoulder. Get it, a cold shoulder. Here's the third one. Did you hear about the cannibal who ordered the pizza with everybody on it? <laughs> and then fourth, why was the cannibal expelled from school? <laughs> For buttering up his teacher. Um, I mean, when you're studying cannibalism, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta laugh a little. For the cannibalism that really occurred during this Assyrian siege of Samaria was nothing to laugh about. Chapter 9 ends. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim and Manasseh, together they shall be against Judah. The tribes of Israel, they'll turn on each other. And yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Even after all that Israel endures, she's still unrepentant. And God's judgments continue, as we'll find out in chapter 10.